Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Hebrews chapter 9. We've been going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse for a long time. And uh, we're making our way through. We're going to try to finish the ninth chapter. We uh, got through the first uh, part of it last uh, Wednesday night, and we'll try to finish it uh, tonight. Um, just by way of catching you up, if you weren't with us, or just to remind you if you were, um, I may have said this before, but I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. Um, that's, uh, there's some real good evidence to that effect, and, uh, and consequently, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it seems to make sense to me by some of the arguments that Paul makes. We know that the author was certainly somebody that knew a lot about, uh, uh, it wasn't just somebody that was a Jew and had a, had a, uh, a historical background as far as the temple and the priesthood and things were concerned. But they had an intricate knowledge of it. They had a, uh, a very detailed understanding of how the, the priesthood worked and so forth. And that would uh, certainly fit Paul's background, Paul's training. Paul is um, uh, identifying throughout the book of the Hebrews, the, the theme of the book is uh, the superiority of Jesus and the superiority of Christianity over Judaism. And in uh, chapter 9, he begins, uh, or continues, I should say, his argument uh, to make that case. And it's, uh, it's interesting to me how that Paul is, uh, it's almost like Paul's a lawyer, because he establishes his, uh, his thesis or his um, uh, main points to begin with and then spends the rest of the book uh, proving it point after point after point. I mean, he's, he's wrapping the case up tight. So by the time we get to chapter 9, he's talking about uh, the, uh, the temple, he uses the tabernacle, the word tabernacle rather than temple, but tabernacle is just, uh, the only difference in tabernacle and temple is the tabernacle was, uh, uh, was portable. It was before they had entered into the land of Canaan, and there's a reason why he used that. That he used the word uh, tabernacle. He's talking about something that represents the whole of the temple system, the whole of the priesthood, the whole of the Jewish system that was given through Moses, uh, from God through Moses. But the reason that he uses tabernacle is because everybody understood that that was temporary. Well, the temple, the temple was just as temporary as the tabernacle as far as God was concerned. The Jews didn't recognize that. The Jews thought this is it and this is the way it's going to be forever. At least that's the way they were operating when, uh, th- when they would try to uh, follow up in those cities where uh, Paul had established churches and try to tear up those cities by imposing Judaism and the, the laws of, uh, of Moses upon the Christians. And that's the reason that Paul starts this uh, this letter to begin with is to show them and prove to them that the law of Moses is no longer in effect and, and should not be imposed on any Christian. Uh, we'll, um, uh, well, he talks specifically about the Day of Atonement, which was the one day a year. It's what the Jews know as uh, Yom Kippur. It's the one day where the sins of Israel were covered by a, a sacrifice. Uh, Israel doesn't make a sacrifice nowadays. They haven't since 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem by the Romans, when the Roman invaded uh, the city and uh, and tore it down. And uh, and even as Jesus had prophesied, not one stone was left upon another. And so the uh, the idea of Judaism, which is established upon the priesthood, is still in effect today. But there's no sacrifice. But at that point in time, the temple was still standing. And so when he speaks of these things, he knows that, the, that his audience, many of these people that are going to be reading the letter and having access to the letter that he wrote are part of the priesthood themselves. And so he, he, makes, uh, he makes certain assertions. He talks about the, uh, the holy place, uh, and then he talks about the holy of holies uh, and, and what those things, um, uh, what, 
pieces of furniture or elements made those things up. Every one of those represents Jesus in some way or another. The table of showbread was a communion table, and the showbread was Jesus. It was the bread of the word. The, uh, it talks about the lampstand. Well, Jesus said he was the light of the world. He also said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Now, if you've ever seen a menorah, it's got the central stem, and then it's got six branches that come off of that, and they all feed in from uh, the one central stem. Well, that's a type of Jesus in the church, too, because when we're in Christ, we are part of his body, not physical body, but we're part of the body of Christ. We're part of, of his uh, spiritual body, that which is not made with hands. And the source of that light, and it was the only light that was in the holy place, the source of that light was the oil, which is a type of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we have too. So in order to ever get to the inner court, or the, the Holy of Holies, the, inner, the, the most inner part of uh, the temple that he talks about where the presence of God was, you had to come through everything that represented Jesus. Now on the Day of Atonement, that one day a year, when the sacrifice was to be made for the sins of Israel, the high priest and only the high priest could go into that inner place, and he could only do that with great precaution. He had to wash himself in a certain way. He had to prepare himself, the garments. He took off all the pretty stuff and the, the breastplate and all that kind of stuff, and he just went in in his, in his long underwear, basically, the, the linen uh, clothing that he uh, was commanded to wear, and that only after uh, great care with ritual washings. But he had to take with him a golden censer. A golden censer is just kind of a little pot that had... Uh, coals from the brazen altar. Now, the brazen altar was down in the outer court where the sacrifice was made. And so you've got something that represents Jesus as the sacrifice after having been placed in this golden censer. Now the high priest comes through the holy place into the holy of holies to the edge of the holy of holies, and he's got to go through this curtain. Now, if he hadn't done everything right, he's going to fall dead in the presence of God. But if he has done everything right, then he has this golden censer in one hand, and he's got... Uh, uh, incense with him. And that incense he has to put on before he goes through the veil and stick it first through the veil as he goes in. That incense is the only thing that's going to protect him from the destructive power of the glory of God or the power, the presence of God under the old covenant. If he goes through the, the, uh, the curtain first and then puts the incense in, he's dead before he ever puts the incense on. He's got to carry that thing in front of him to go through the, to, uh, through the veil. Now, the incense represents the very things that we enter into the presence of God with, and that is prayer and praise. Now, one thing I want you to see, Paul makes this, uh, makes this point and goes into some detail about it, but I want you to notice in verse 8, talking about the difference in the Old Testament and what Jesus has done now, he says, the Holy Ghost, this signifying or clarifying or making plain, notice this phrase, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. In other words, Paul is saying, under the old covenant, only the high priest could go in, and that was only one day a year, and that was only after great precautions. And this was to the Holy Ghost proving or showing that the way into the presence of God was not yet open. But we know, they may not have, but we know that Je that's exactly what Jesus opened up to us. Consequently, he tells us about Jesus being a better sacrifice. We'll start reading in verse, uh, oh, whatever we want to start, maybe verse 11. And we'll read down through verse 14, and then we'll pick up and take up some new territory. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, he's talking about his physical body, the incarnation of, of Christ here on the earth, being born of a, a virgin, neither by the blood of goats and calves, 
but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, that's the presence of God, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying the flesh. We talked about this last time. This was something that when somebody came in contact with death, a dead body or, or something that was unclean, the only thing that could cleanse them or purify their flesh was the sprinkling of water and the sprinkling of ashes from the heifer. It was a ritual. It was the only way that it could be done. And Paul is saying, if that could purify your flesh, which it doesn't, I mean, it's symbolic, but it doesn't cleanse anything. You know as well as I do that if you come in contact with a dead body and it makes you unclean, there's no water that's going to cleanse you. There's no uh, ashes that's going to make the difference there. It's just a symbolic thing showing that contact with death must be overcome. And this is the way that God set it up to be done. So he says, if if the sprinkling of the unclean and the ashes of the heifer sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, some commentators will say, and you can make a real strong argument, that chapter 9, verses 14 and 15 are really everything that that redemption hangs on. It's everything. It's the real crux. It may be the most important point that Paul makes in his whole argument. And he's saying this. In verse 14, he's saying this one thing. He's saying, if your flesh could be purified through natural ritual things, how much more can Jesus, the blood of Jesus, who offered himself up? Now, the eternal spirit's not the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Jesus' eternal spirit. He's talking about the will of Jesus who offered himself up, uh, uh, up uh, willingly. Have you ever heard of the... Um, uh, scriptures in the Old Testament talk about the horns of the altar. There were certain times where, uh, well, when uh, when David uh, was on his deathbed and he uh, commissioned or appointed uh, Solomon to be king, one of David's other sons wanted to be king first. So he he appointed himself. He had a big show and big ceremony about hey, how he was anointed by the military leader to be king and, and that kind of stuff. And then David uh, said, no, Solomon's the guy. So he took the prophet and then anointed him. And so now you got two people claiming to be kings. What are they going to do? The first son ran to the altar and threw himself on the altar and grabbed a hold of the horns because his thinking was that's a holy place. That's that if he's got a hold of the horns of the altar, Solomon wouldn't kill him there. Well, let me ask you a question. Why are there horns on the altar? The, the answer is very simple. There's, it's a, a big square and there are four horns, one horn on each of the, the four corners of the altar. The reason is sacrifices didn't want to be killed. And so you'd take the goat or the calf or the bullock or whatever it was, and one horn would be tied to one leg. And so you've got this thing standing in place. He's pulling. He's trying to work away from the thing. He's close to where this this um, uh, brazen altar is. This fire is hot. He doesn't want to be close there. He sees somebody coming at him with a knife. He wants to get away. Not Jesus. Jesus offered himself up willingly. And, folks, that's what the Garden of Gethsemane was all about. It's about Jesus being a willing sacrifice, not just a sacrifice, but it's where he made his will completely and totally in line with God's will. You remember his prayer. He said, Lord, if there's any other way for us to do this, let's take the other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's where he's offering himself up willingly. Everything else was just going through the the, the fulfillment of the the action or the determination he'd already made. Going to the cross was just fulfilling the determination he had made in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what this is talking about. And it says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through his eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Here's the result. Here's something that none of the Old Testament priests could do. Here's something no Old Testament sacrifice could do. The blood of Jesus purges your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And here's the point. You could make a sacrifice, and folks, honestly, if you were a good law-abiding, somebody that followed the laws of Moses to the letter, you're making a sacrifice every day of some type. It may be a meal offering. It may be a wave offering. It might be a, a turtle dove. It might be any number of things. But you're making a sacrifice every day. And here's the way the sacrifice has worked. If you as a good Jew, good law-abiding Jew, you came under the old covenant and you brought a sacrifice every day because you're messing up every day. Everybody is. So you owe a sacrifice. Now, whether you make one or not, you know, most people didn't. But you owe a sacrifice every day. So if you are trying to atone for everything that you're doing wrong, you're making a sacrifice day after day after day. Now, every time you make that sacrifice, it's not going to be the same priest. They had a whole bunch of them. The high priest was the one that took care of the, the, the day of atonement. The other priest took care of the other stuff. So you might see a different priest every day. But every day you bring that sacrifice, he's going to teach in some form, maybe not long, but he's going to teach in some form that this is representative of what the Messiah will fulfill. So you're hearing 364 days a year some teaching about what the Messiah will be fulfilling. That him that is to come, what he will do so that we don't ever have to do this again. Now they knew that this was part of their ritual, but when the time came, they wouldn't give it up. And that's why Paul's having such a problem with these, these Jews trying to tear up the churches that he starts. Now, you can make those sacrifices 364 days a year, and then on the 365th day, bring your sacrifice to be added in with the sins of Israel and, and the high priest taking care of those things. You could take care of all of those things, and not one day of year, not one day of the year is your conscience going to be purged. You may be able to step back and say, well, I did what I'm supposed to do. I fulfilled the ritual, but you know as well as, as I do that the person that's making the sacrifice knows God's given me a pass on this, but I'm still the same person that did wrong yesterday. Their minds, their, their, their conscience, that which knows the difference between right and wrong, always knew that they were still sinners. That's the point he's trying to make about the superiority of Christianity. Folks, if you're living as a Christian thinking that you're a sinner, you haven't yet realized what Jesus did for you. You haven't really taken hold of what Jesus did and why he did it. You're still like the Old Testament. You're still like some of these guys living by the law, saying you're a Christian but still trying to live by the law. Well, quit that. Doesn't work. Well, how are we going to quit that, Pastor Mike? It comes through knowledge, and it's the very knowledge that Paul is trying to bring to them. Now, Paul knows what this is like. Don't get me wrong. Once you get saved, it's not a matter of, okay, now we know we're right no matter what. Paul talks to the Corinthians. Uh, well, not the Corinthians, to the, uh, to the Romans. He talked in Romans chapter 7. You remember what he said? He said, I, I'm just like you guys. I find myself doing things that I, that I don't want to do. From the inside, my spirit doesn't want to do. But my flesh does it. And the things that my spirit wants to do, my flesh won't do. What am I going to do? Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? He says, I, the man on the inside, is, is saved. He's made new. A new creature in Christ Jesus. But from the outside, I just keep getting pulled into the same wrongdoing as I always have. 
What am I going to do? Then he gets into chapter 8 where he says, thank God there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He talks about the victory of living from your spirit, accepting what Jesus has done and allowing your conscience, the knowledge of right and wrong, to be purged from all that bad stuff because of our flesh. He makes the distinction between the flesh that's doing the wrong stuff. That's not me. The me, the real me on the inside, the eternal part of me serves God always. You know, it's one of the hardest things. It's uh, it's amazing thing when you start talking about faith, talking about the subject of faith. Everybody wants to use their faith for finances. And if sickness comes, they want to use their faith on, on physical healing and so forth. And those are great things. There's nothing wrong with that. But how many times do people realize that the important thing to use your faith on first and foremost is righteousness? Because you're only righteous by faith. That means you confess from your heart independent of the circumstances. That means you can be right in the middle of doing something wrong and declare, I'm righteous by the blood of Jesus. Not I'm righteous because of what I'm doing or what I'm not doing, but I'm righteous by the blood of Jesus. That's the purging from dead works as far as the conscience is concerned that Paul is talking about. And he says, if the blood of bulls and goats can purify your flesh, if the Old Testament ritual can purify your flesh, how much more? Now think about who's saying this. This is a guy that stood there while Stephen was stoned was ascending to Stephen's death. He's the guy that had letters to persecute Christians, put some in jail, put others to death. And Paul says that his conscience has been purged from the wrong stuff he did. Don't tell me you can't get yours. None of us have done the wrong things that Paul did. It can be done, but it has to be done by faith. Start declaring that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You know, it's an amazing thing to me. You go to so many churches today and they want to talk about how broken we are. Folks, I'm not broken. I'm a work in progress. But I'm not broken. You hear all through this Christianity and you hear all the Christian music and all this stuff about our brokenness. I don't have any brokenness. And they talk about it like it's some badge of honor. Oh, I'm broken. That means I'm humble. Well, I believe the Bible, so I'm not broken. I'm made a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, I used to be broken. No question about that. I used to be broken, but then I accepted what the Bible said to be true. Oh, well, I just wouldn't say that for anything in the world, Pastor Mike. Well, you never will live above sin if you don't. That's what he's talking about that Jesus has accomplished. And that's why he's talking about the, the importance. The, uh, um, this is the critical nature of the blood of Jesus that was offered for you. Now, verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator. I'm going to read through a whole verse and then take it apart because verse 15 is just chock full of stuff for the Jews. doesn't make much sense to us until we do take it apart and take it in context, but it is full of stuff for the Jews. It nails them to the wall. He says, and for this cause, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by the means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the First Testament, they which were they, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now let's start from the back a little bit and maybe jump around. Notice it says might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Inheritance. That's the goal. That's everything that the Messiah was supposed to bring. Eternal inheritance. In other words, the Jews had a promise and everybody knew it. The Jews had a promise that someday the Messiah would come and would take off the burden from the from mankind. Well, mankind in their thinking was just them, the children of Israel. But their thinking, they, they changed that thinking to thinking that it was a natural kingdom, 
That's why people kept asking Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? They didn't realize that it was a spiritual kingdom. They didn't realize that the kingdom was a kingdom of righteousness, not a kingdom of we're going to finally get back at the Romans. So the promise of eternal inheritance, that was what the Jews had been looking for since Abraham. And remember, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, it says that God preached the gospel to Abraham when he first made the covenant. He told Abraham, just like I'm going to give you a son, just like you've offered your son as a sacrifice, but I stopped you. I'll offer my son as a sacrifice. He'll be the one that fulfills this covenant. Abraham knew about Jesus to some degree because the Bible says he preached the gospel to him. The gospel is good news. That has to be Jesus, doesn't it? So he preached that to Abraham. God revealed that to Abraham. All the Jews knew this, at least in theory. The promise of eternal inheritance was what the original goal was to be. It's what they were trying to obtain through the law of Moses. So that's what everybody's looking for. How are they going to get there? Back to the first part of the verse. And for this cause, the word, the phrase for this cause is translated therefore in other places in, Ro- in the, the book that, uh, uh, the book of Hebrews. So it literally says, and therefore, because the blood of Jesus purges our conscience from dead works. And therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament. Interesting that he starts talking about a New Testament. Immediately after he talks about the blood of Jesus being offered for us, he starts talking about the New Testament. From this point on in the book of Hebrews, he's going to talk a lot about the New Testament. A lot about the New Testament. And notice it says that Jesus is the mediator of a New Testament. Now, what is the significance of a mediator? Folks, please realize this word mediator could also be translated intercessor. A mediator is one that comes between two parties. Now, we know of mediation as being when there's a dispute between two parties, somebody comes in and tries to resolve the dispute. That's what Jesus did. There was a dispute between God and man, and Jesus became the mediator. Now, he became the mediator, therefore, he became the mediator of the New Testament that by the means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions, under the First Testament, meaning the Old Covenant, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Folks, there's three things you need to see in this. Number one, when he talks about the, the First Testament, notice it says he died for the redemption of the transgressions. It does not say he died for people. Now, that's strange. I thought Jesus died for mankind, particularly those that were under the covenant, the followers of the covenant that God made with Abraham as identified and summarized through Moses. But it doesn't say he died, or died for the redemption of people. It says he died for the redemption of transgressions. Why? Very simply. Death is not the natural result of creation. God didn't make Adam to die. Death is the wages of sin. That means there's a debt to pay. Because when God made man, he made him perfect. So when man fell, when man sinned, that means now there is a debt that has to be paid. Somebody's got to pay the debt for sin. Now, what about the Old Testament saints? Now, remember, the Jews were all about Moses. They were all about Abraham. They are all about the prophets. Didn't believe in them when they were here, but after they killed them, they said, yeah, we like them. So the Jews were all about Moses and Abraham, right? They said that to Jesus. They were asking, Jesus asked, who is your father? They said, we're father, we're children of Abraham. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Why? Because God preached the gospel to him. He showed it. He talked about Moses. They talked about Moses and the fathers. They talked about being followers of Moses. 
Jesus said, Moses testified of me. So they were all about the Old Testament saints. Their heritage was everything. Well, what happens to those guys? What happens to the Old Testament saints? They made the same sacrifices as the people of, of this day are making in the temple or in the tabernacle, depending on when they lived. They're making the same sacrifices. What about them? Their consciences were never purged from dead works. They never got beyond the knowledge that they were still sinners. So what happened to them? Well, as far as the Jews were concerned, they were in good stead with God. The Jews believed Abraham and Moses. Oh, man, they've got to be, you know, as close to God as you could get. Now, they understood they couldn't be in heaven. They had enough knowledge from the, from the teaching of the Old Testament, uh, uh, revelation from God to know that. But they believed that the Old Testament saints were right there in the middle of, of whatever good thing you could have. So what is the first thing that Paul identifies? He says that Jesus died for the redemption of the transgressions. In other words, he had to pay the debt for the sin that had been made. But how do you kill God? He's the son of God, isn't he? Paul has been making the point that he's the son of God, that he came to the earth. He was born of a virgin. He had a body or a tabernacle that was not built with hands. In other words, it didn't come by natural means of two, a man and a woman coming together and having a child. God was his father. How do you kill God? Folks, if you kill God, he's not God. How do you kill God? He's got to become the mediator. How does he become the mediator? By being born into the earth as a man. God becomes man who then dies for the sins or the debt of sins. Death is two parts. There's, there, there's really two parts to death. One is physical death. That came as a result of Adam's uh, transgression in the Garden of Eden. But the second part is eternal judgment. Because not only is the sin got to be paid for, now the judgment comes upon the person who sinned. So there's two parts to death. And the Jews know this. There's two parts. There's temporal death and there's eternal judgment. Jesus paid both of them. That's why Jesus' death was not just physical on the cross. It was spiritual in hell. It had to be. Or else the debt couldn't be paid. If Jesus just died physically, then we would be redeemed from physical death but we still be eternally separated from God. We could live forever in this natural form, but we'd always be separated from God. But Jesus became the mediator of a New Testament. The only way that could happen is God comes to earth, becomes a man, lays aside his divinity, which the Bible says he did, meaning Jesus didn't heal the sick because he was the son of God. He didn't do miracles because he was the son of God. He did miracles because he was a man anointed of God. Man can be anointed of God. How could God anoint himself? How could God, the Father, anoint Jesus, the Son of God? Can't be done. But when Jesus laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man, now he can be anointed. And that's the only way he could become the mediator, because now he's all God and he's all man. He's not all God in power. He's all God in essence, spirit. And he's all man because he's flesh. So you got a mediator, the perfect mediator, all God, all man, who dies to pay both parts of death's penalty. The redemption of the transgressions. He dies physically. He dies spiritually. To fulfill the promise. Can you see it? And for this cause, therefore, because of his blood... 
Therefore, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, the Old Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, who are they which are called? It's interesting that he, he doesn't call anybody by name. Because the Jews are all about names. He doesn't say the children of Abraham might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. He says they which are called. The qualification is character, not pedigree. They which are called. Well, who is called? As far as the Jews were concerned, the ones they're most concerned about are Abraham and Moses and the Old Testament saints. What is he telling them? He's telling telling them the redemption was, number one, for the Old Testament saints. Number two, the redemption was something that the Levitical priesthood could not do themselves because it couldn't purge your conscience from the knowledge of right and wrong. Couldn't purge your conscience from the knowledge that you were a sinner. Number three, the logical conclusion, therefore, is if the Old Testament saints were redeemed by the blood of Jesus, how much more is that going to be true for those in the New Covenant that accept Jesus' sacrifice too? He's trying to get them away from the law of Moses, and he's proving it through their own favorite group. And folks, that's the reason why he goes into chapter 11 talking about the heroes of faith. Because the heroes of faith are all the guys that these people are hanging their hats on. They're all the guys that the Jews are saying, this is why we still fulfill the law of Moses. Because of Abraham, because of Noah, because of Enoch, because of Moses, because of all these guys. Paul is saying these guys were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Verse 16. For where a testament is... There must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Now, the word testament is interesting, and in theological circles, everybody argues about whether or not this should be translated covenant or testament. Testament means will. We know of, uh, we use the the phrase, uh, the only way that I know of that we use the phrase in common language is last will and testament. Now, there's a difference between covenants and testaments. There, for me, it's splitting hairs, but you need to know this, I guess just so that you can say you, you heard it. A last will and testament is a, is a gift that's bequeathed to somebody. In other words, if I write my will, I leave whatever I've got to my kids. A covenant is different in that it has benefits, but it also has conditions. A will doesn't necessarily have conditions. Now, you can write them in, but a will in and of itself and by nature, by definition, doesn't have conditions. I die, so my stuff goes to my family. But a covenant's different. A covenant is one person making a promise to someone else if the other person, the second person, fulfills the conditions. Now, folks, we've got both a covenant and a testament because there are things that belong to us, but they are conditional. There are things that have been bequeathed to us, but they don't automatically fall on you like ripe cherries off of a tree, as Brother Hagin used to say. There's a promise, but there's a condition. The condition for us is Jesus. The condition for us is faith. The condition for us is obedience to the word. Here's one of the problems with the modern day grace teaching. Because the modern day grace teaching acts like obedience is a dirty word. Folks, obedience is the condition of the covenant. Not that you can't have something unless you obey, unless you do everything right. But don't think for a minute that just because you get into the family of God, everything's going to turn out right for you. Obedience for us is faith. Anything that's not of faith is of sin. And so this knowledge, this, this, this idea of, of God's unconditional love, you know, God, God loves mankind unconditional. 
but he provides benefits and blessings conditionally. And so this idea that so many people have that, that oh, we just want to look at God as an unconditional love uh, being and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, there's an element of truth to that. But if you try to live on that and that alone, you'll never reap the benefits of what Jesus died for. Because it's not love that takes advantage and takes hold of the things that Jesus died for. It's not love that takes hold of healing. It's not love that takes care of financial provision. It's faith that does those things. And you can't substitute love for faith. And so the, the, the idea that this is, is just all unconditional. No, it's not. It's always been conditional on obedience. Now, under the Old Covenant, there was an obedience to something that they couldn't keep. So it was frustrating. But for us, it's obedience to something that we are well able to keep. And that is just simply believe God and operate from our spirit. It's the obedience of faith. Not the obedience of works, like under the Old Covenant, but the obedience of faith. So it says, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Both a covenant and a will are based on the death of somebody. It's either based on the death of the person making the promise or the, uh, based on the death of the person who had the goods. For a testament is a force. After men are dead, otherwise it is no, of no strength. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. My will is no good for my family as long as I'm alive. It's good that I've got one so that we're prepared, but nobody transfers anything until I die. My son cannot have my car until I'm gone, no matter how much they want it. It's not the way it works. Whereupon, verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. The word dedicated is literally inaugurated. He's saying, now, this is not just true for the New Testament. This is true for Moses. This is true for the Old Covenant. Whereupon neither the First Testament was inaugurated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the Testament which God has enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels, of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without there, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission, meaning remission of sins. Now he's talking about Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 20, God uh, gives Moses the Ten Commandments, the tables of stone. And so the chapters 20 through 24, or 20 up until chapter 24, is God giving Moses the law. He's telling him all the different commandments. He's telling him all the stuff. And finally, in chapter 24, Moses brings the, the law back to the people and says, all right, here's what we're going to do. These are the commandments. These are the things that we have to keep, but we're going to offer a sacrifice. And he offered that sacrifice. He took uh, um, one representative for each of the 12 tribes plus 70 elders. And he took these people up. Uh, he went up into the mountain to, uh, a ways to commune with God. They stayed back a little, little ways. And then he came down after being in the presence of God, and he had the sacrifice. He had the blood. And he took that blood and mixed it with water uh, with a hyssop branch, and he sprinkled everybody. He sprinkled his group. He sprinkled the, the law, the, the tablets of stone and the other commandments that he had been given. Not everything that God gave him was written in stone. Figuratively it was, but you know what I mean. It wasn't, it, some of it was written on skins and, and, and that type of stuff. So he took that and he sprinkled everything. Now why would he do that? God's the one that gave the law. It's already full. It's already pure. 
God's the one that gave the Ten Commandments. I mean, who in the world would suggest that anything that man does would purify stone tablets that God carved with his finger? I mean, that's supernatural enough to be okay, isn't it? You would think so. But the symbol is the First Testament didn't become enforced. It wasn't enforced until something died. What died was the sacrifice, and the proof of that sacrifice was the blood was sprinkled. That's why he's telling the importance, or that's why he's showing as an example, the importance of the blood of Jesus being offered to purify your conscience and also for the redemption of the transgressions, to pay the price for sin. Verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Now, we just told you what he purified. He purified the law. He purified the commandments. He purified the people. He purified all the things that God gave him that was a part of the Mosaic law and the ritualistic law. He took blood and he sprinkled those things. Now, what does Paul call those things? He calls them the pattern of things in heaven. So the law was a pattern of something in heaven. The instruments of the tabernacle that were purified are patterns of things in heaven. Now, what does it mean, patterns of things in heaven? Does it mean there's a, there's a brazen altar in heaven? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means these things represented something that Jesus fulfilled. Instead of a tabernacle in heaven, instead of a temple in heaven, there's Jesus in heaven. Because the temple and the tabernacle represented him. Instead of a lampstand in heaven, there's Jesus in heaven. Because the lampstand represents Jesus. Do you see the point he's making? He said it was necessary for all these earthly things that represented Jesus to be purified. Why? Because there's no covenant without the shedding of blood. There's no remission without shedding of blood. There's no remission of sins without shedding of blood. Blood is necessary for a sacrifice to cover sins. So back to verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, meaning these things, these elements of blood and water and hyssop and so forth. But the heavenly things themselves, notice the contrast he makes, not the earthly things that represent Jesus, but the heavenly things themselves. Now, what were the heavenly things themselves? The everlasting covenant, the church, and redemption itself. See, those are everlasting things. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, he's saying it's going to take better blood for, for heavenly things. Earthly blood's okay for things that just represent heavenly things. But it's going to take something better than earthly blood and the blood of bulls and goats and uh, man's sacrifices to purify heavenly things. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands. He didn't go into the holy of holies in the temple. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead and went back to the temple. It says he didn't enter into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true or patterns of that which is real. But where did he go then? Into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. Now verse 25 starts an, ar uh, an, uh, an argument against what might be an objection. For example, if Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron, and Aaron entered in or Aaron of the Levites uh, entered in once into the holy place one time a year and, and only after great, great precaution, and Jesus fulfills that, then the Jews could stand up and say, well, wait a minute, now, now please realize the Jews realize that their whole temple sacrifice system is crumbling. 
if they're hearing what Paul says and they have no argument against it, he's got the same training they do. They have no argument against it. They realize piece by piece, block by block, this foundation of the temple ritual worship is going away. The ones that make up the priesthood realize they're losing their place. That's what they were afraid of with Jesus. Remember? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, that set them off. Talking about the the priesthood. They said, we've got to kill this guy. If we don't kill this guy, the Romans will come and take away our place. Keeping their place must have been pretty important to them. Now Paul is showing them, here's why you're losing your place. Not because the Romans are going to come take it away, even though they do in just a few short years later. But you're losing, you lost your place when Jesus was raised from the dead. You just don't know it yet. And they see this crumbling. They see block by block being taken out from underneath them. So what are they going to do? If they're trying to hold on to it, they're going to come up with arguments and objections to this. What's the objection that they're going to make here? Well, they're going to say, well, wait a minute. The high priest has got to still be important because Aaron went in once a year. The Levitical priesthood, the high priest went in once a year. So that must mean that Jesus must make the sacrifice again and again and again, which means we have to keep things going for him to keep coming. And Paul answers the objection. He says, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then, if that were the case, then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. In other words, he's saying, if that were the way that it worked, then Jesus would have to come every generation and offer a sacrifice. Well, they know that hadn't happened. They know nobody had come before like Jesus. So he says, here's the answer to the objection. But now once in the end of the world, the end of the, the phrase, the end of the world means the fulfillment of time. But now once in the fulfillment of time, hath he appeared. The word appeared literally means made manifest in the flesh. Now at the fulfillment of time, when time was fulfilled, he was made manifest in the flesh. Get this, once and for all, final death blow, he put away sin. Now, folks, can I ask you a question? Don't think about what the Jews are reading in this. Think about what you're reading in this. If Jesus put away sin, why are you still having trouble with it? If Jesus put away sin, why does the church struggle with it? Why is the church broken? If he put away sin, what's there to be broken over? There's only one answer, and that is, The church, by and large, doesn't realize that he put away sin. See, in the church's mind, it's that Jesus did something about sin, but we're still broken. We're still sinners. Bless our hearts. We're still whatever. Unrighteous. Unworthy. You work up a good cry about that, can't you? Yet the Bible says Jesus put away sin. He paid for it once and for all. For when the fullness of time came, Jesus was made manifest in the flesh to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, please notice he didn't say put away sins. Before it said that he came for the redemption of the transgression of sins or the transgressions, period, plural, the sins of the old covenant. Now it says he came to put away sin. You remember in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse... uh, Verse 5, it says he was wounded for our iniquities. He was bruised for our uh, transgressions. What's the difference in iniquities and transgression? 
goes on to say the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we're healed. Why? Transgressions and iniquities are both sins. Why? Why would the Holy Ghost say the same thing twice in the same verse? He didn't say healing twice. He didn't talk about the chastisement of peace twice. Why did he mention sins twice? Because, folks, here is the issue. He dealt with two parts, two things where sin is concerned. He dealt with the price for sins that had been committed, and he put away sin, singular, once and for all. That's the difference between iniquities and transgressions. Iniquities were personal sins. I'm sorry, I've got it backwards. Transgressions were personal sins. Iniquity was sin, singular. He paid the price for sin as well as the sins that he'd committed. In other words, he paid the price for Adam's sins, and he paid the price for everybody else's sins too. But those are two separate things. If that were not true, then once he paid the price for Adam's sin, you and I would be in the same shape as Adam, messing up as we go. And if he only paid for the individual sins but not Adam's sin, then there would still be a debt of eternal judgment due us. He had to pay for both. You would think that Jesus would have paid enough so that you and I would have victory. Wouldn't you? He did. Well, then why, don't, why doesn't the church walk in victory? Because it doesn't realize what it has. It doesn't realize who we've been made. We're still looking at things from a fleshly standpoint, from a natural standpoint. So he said, but now once, when the fulfillment of time has come, has he appeared, made manifest in the flesh, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Remember I told you death has two parts? Death is not the natural result of creation. God did not make man to die. Physical death overtook man only after he sinned. Death is not the result of something that God originally planned. Death is the wages of sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The only reason man dies is because of sin. Well, what is there to death? Well, there's two parts. There's physical death. We know that man's body is subject to physical death because of sin that entered into the world. But we also know there's an eternal judgment because mankind sinned. Jesus had to pay both parts. And so where he says it's appointed unto man once to die, but after that the eternal judgment, he's saying Jesus took care of both sides of this. He took care of the sin that brought about physical death, and he took care of sin, or he took care of sin through his physical death, and he took care of the eternal judgment, which was the penalty or the debt owed because of that sin. Now notice verse 28. We'll finish with this. Didn't know if we'd get there, but we did. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Talking about his sacrifice on the cross. And unto them, notice this phrase, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's telling us a couple of things. First of all, it's telling us there is a a deposit being made on salvation. That deposit being made is in our spirits 
but there's still a part of salvation that is yet to come. Remember I said that Jesus paid two parts, the physical death part and the eternal judgment part? Well, why does man still die physically? See, some people could take this out of context and say, well, if Jesus paid the price for physical death, then that means we don't ever have to die. Well, good luck with that. But there's coming a time where you won't. That time is when he comes back and when we receive our redeemed bodies. Now, notice where it says those who look for his appearing. Paul is not just jumping to a new subject and talking about the rapture. Paul is still talking about the tabernacle or the temple ritual worship. Think about it. He's saying this. He's saying when Aaron or the high priest went in on the day of atonement, that's the subject, that's everything he's talking about in the first part of the chapter. He said on the day of atonement when the high priest went in, everybody held their breath. They hope that he's done everything right. They hope that he prepared himself well. They hope that he washed himself right. They hope that he's wearing the right stuff. They hope that he got that incense going before he walked through the curtain. And so what are they doing? Everybody is on edge waiting for the appearing of the high priest. He went in. Everybody's hoping he comes out. Because if he doesn't come out, atonement hasn't been made. In the same way, Jesus is a better high priest. He went in to the presence of God Not in the temple, but in heaven. So what are we doing? We're looking for him to come back. And that's the point that Paul is making. He said, just like the high priest operated here in the tabernacle and in the temple, he's saying Jesus fulfilled every bit of that. He's coming back too. And when he comes back, we will receive the the fulfillment, the fullness of everything that he paid for. There's no physical death ever again going to hand him hinder or hamper man. Not only has the eternal judgment part been paid for, but the physical death part's been taken care of. We've got a deposit on that, and he will pay up as soon as he comes back. Now, if you're the high priest reading the letter, what are you going to say? It's going to be easy for somebody to say, oh, well, we can't believe that. Well, what part? What part's wrong? It's in line with everything the high priest has been teaching about the Messiah. They just didn't tell Jesus part of it. Paul has nailed them down. Now, chapter 10 gets really interesting because chapter 10 goes into why it's done even further. Folks, these guys, the high priest, their best shot was to burn the letter before anybody ever found it. Because they have absolutely no no basis to stand on after Paul finishes. But notice Paul's not doing it by throwing off at anybody. He's not saying that anybody's wrong. He said what they've been doing was ordained of God. It's just finished now. And that's why he talks about the tabernacle. Everybody knew the tabernacle was temporary. The temple was too. The temple was just a permanent building, not a permanent system. And it'll only be a couple of short years before that system departs and vanishes forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. Lord Jesus, you did so much more than what we ever knew you were doing. You did more than your disciples knew, and they were with you every day. You did more than the high priest and the the other priests recognized. You stood in the office of prophet, priest, and king. Thank you, Father, that through the work of Jesus, we've all been made kings and priests unto you. So we can enter into the veil, into the holy place, the very presence of God with our prayer and praise based on Jesus, 
our relationship with him and the presence of the Holy Ghost within us. Father, thank you that we have access. Even as Paul had said earlier in the letter, let us come boldly under the throne of grace. We have access into your presence at any time and at all times simply by faith in Jesus. What a privilege it is to serve you, Father. We thank you for your goodness. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.